The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The longer that I sit with Willard's thesis, that hurry is the great enemy, that it's the issue underneath so many of the other issues of our day and age, from outrage culture to chronic anxiety to the epidemic of burnout to the rise of loneliness and the breakdown of the family and the social cohesion and political polarization, so many things, the more I think that he was on to something. Well, hey, good morning, Messiah. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, this past Friday at Night to Shine, someone asked me, are our balloons Chiefs colored or 49ers colored? Uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, whichever floats your boat, that, who, that is who we're supporting today. Um, but it's also Jubilee Sunday here at our church. And this is a day uh, that, that sticks in my memory because I still remember six years ago hearing my first Jubilee Sunday message here at Messiah. And it sticks out to me because in that message, Pastor Schley, back then this was long before, you know, Pastor Jim wasn't here yet, it was just Pastor Schley, he shared a message with a deeply personal story about the time he got busted in college for driving his car around the 400-meter track at his university. Um, and he was shown an immense amount of grace by his university uh, staff, but let me just say, Lutheran High kids do not get any ideas with that story. Just because the pastor did it doesn't mean you should do it. But he was shown an immense amount of grace despite his mistakes. And this story, uh, I think, impacted me so much because at that time, I was still pretty new here at Messiah. I was just a few months into my call. And so I was still trying to get to know who this pastor was that I had been called to serve with. What is this guy named Chuck Schley like? And up until that point, you know, back in the previous June, when I first got the phone call from him saying that Messiah had called me to be there director of youth ministry, uh, like any good millennial, the first thing I did was go to his Instagram to see what this guy was like. And I'll just say, the results did not disappoint, okay? <laughs> I'm going through this photographic story of who my future pastor is going to be, and I realized, well, this guy is either very cool or he's very weird. <laughs> that was the best one. What that Jubilee Sunday message taught me, though, was that I got to serve with a pastor who is honest about his own shortcomings and sins and who deeply and personally understood the grace and generosity that God had shown him. And in truth, that's what Jubilee Sunday is all about. It's a day of celebrating the grace and generosity that God has shown to all of us. This word Jubilee... It comes to us from the Old Testament, and it's a reference to this period of time that was known as the Jubilee year or, or the year of Jubilee. And to understand what the year of Jubilee is all about, we have to go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is Sabbath. You see, back then, remember, we talked about how God had created this system where every seven days, his people were to engage in one day of Sabbath rest. In Leviticus, God takes this seven-day rhythm and expands it and incorporates it into a seven-year rhythm. So every seven days, you have a Sabbath day, and then every seven years, you would have a Sabbath year. And so for this agriculturally-based society, what it meant was that you would take a whole year off of sowing and harvesting crops. It was a time for the land to rest, for the animals to rest, for, for you to rest. 
And so you have this rhythm, right? Every seven days, a Sabbath day. Every seven years, a Sabbath year. And then every 50th year is the Jubilee year. And the Jubilee was essentially a super Sabbath. Here's what Leviticus tells us about the year of Jubilee. It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. And so at first glance, right, the Jubilee sounds like one of these Sabbath years, a day of no harvesting, no planting, living off of what the land naturally produces. But there's even more. Leviticus 25 goes on. It says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. So we've got this Sabbath component to the Jubilee year, and we've got now this economic component. Here's what's happening. Say you are an ancient Israelite who has fallen on hard times. The bills are piling up, the debt is becoming unmanageable, and you have no choice but to sell your family's land, your one way of earning a living. Now that might work for a bit, but what happens when that money runs out? What do your kids and your grandkids have to look forward to? Well, with this jubilee year, every 50 years, that land would be returned to you from the person who purchased land. And this wasn't meant to be a punishment for the rich person. This was just meant to be a means of looking out for the poor person. It was a way of giving a family a second chance of saying, just because you've fallen on hard times and you're suffering with poverty now, doesn't mean you have to pass that down to your children or your grandchildren. And so this Jubilee year transformed the outlook of future generations. So we've got this economic component, and yet the Jubilee year continues. Leviticus 25 goes on. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. And so to put all this together, the Jubilee year was a year of Sabbath rest, a year for families to get their land back, and a year for indentured servants to be freed and sent home. For the poor and the captives in the story, the Jubilee year is good news and restoration straight from the provision of God. And for the rich, the Jubilee year was a year of being called to be generous, to give to your neighbor, to give the land back that you'd purchased, to set free the indentured servants that you'd bought, and to take a year off of harvesting crops and land for for building wealth. It's this beautiful rhythm, the Jubilee year, of receiving and giving. And it's a beautiful image, too, of the character of God, isn't it? 
what we see in the Jubilee year is that we have a God who looks out for and cares for all of his children, even the poor and the servants. Those, the rest of us that we would overlook, God looks to and cares for and provides for. It's a beautiful image of a God who cares for his creation. The land is gonna have a chance to rest. The animals that work the land are gonna have a year to rest. The people that work the land are gonna have a year to rest. You know, the book of Leviticus gets a lot of bad press, right? People think of it as a book filled with laws and regulations and it comes off as very harsh. But don't you see here in Leviticus 25, the good news of our God, that even here in Leviticus, God loves and cares for and provides for his children, all of his children and all of his creation. It's a beautiful story. But I think for us today, we have maybe uh, a hang-up when it comes to understanding the Jubilee year. Because you see, in the Jubilee year, there seems to be this line. And on one side of the line, you have the poor who are the recipients of God's generosity. And on the other side, you have the rich who are called to give out and dispense of God's generosity. And if you're like me, you're reading the story and thinking, well... If I were to take my life and transport it back to that time, which side of the line would I be on? Would I be considered one of the poor who receives God's generosity? Or would I be one of the rich who's called to give out God's generosity? It's an interesting question. And if we were to look at a global scale, we might get some answers. Here's some statistics for you. If you are in a household of four that brings in just $35,000 a year, you are already in the top 25% of global wealth earners in the world. If you live alone and you make just $20,000 a year, which, by the way, is less than what you'd make working full-time at the Missouri minimum wage, you're already in the top 10% of global wealth. When we look at statistics like these, I think a lot of us here, it sounds like we're on the side of the haves rather than the have-nots. We're on the side of those being called to give out God's generosity. But let's just stop right there with those statistics because I think a lot of you like me have heard statistics like this before. I was well indoctrinated as a young person with this idea that simply growing up in America, living a normal life in America means that I'm one of the wealthiest people in the world. And I'm sure you've heard things like that before too. And while that might be true, and I could stand up here and share statistics until I'm blue in the face, I'm going to guess very few of us are going to feel called to go home, sell our house, downsize, and sell the profits and give it to someone else. Because that's essentially what the Jubilee year calls the rich to do. And if I were in that position, if God were to come today and tell us to reinstitute the Jubilee year, I think we'd have some people with little, some reservations, with some hangups on being so generous. And here's how I know that we would have some hangups. Because according to the evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible, there is no evidence whatsoever that the Israelites ever practiced the Jubilee year at all. In fact, in Leviticus 26, just one chapter later, God is looking forward to a time and saying, 
that this system of Sabbath years that he's established, Sabbath years, Jubilee years, his people are gonna fall short of living it out. He looks forward to the future where the Israelites in, in a few hundred years are gonna go into the exile, and he says this about their time in exile. He says, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste. Your cities will lie in ruins. This is where Leviticus gets that uh, reputation of harshness. <laughs> then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years, all the time that it lies desolate. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest that it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. So Leviticus 25 gives us this beautiful image of a society where God uses the rich to take care of the poor, where families get their land back, where generational poverty is taken care of, where indentured servants are set free. It's this beautiful image, and in Leviticus 26, we find out that it probably never happened. And I think, I think we know why. It's because to this day, land and cheap labor are some of the greatest wealth builders in our society. And in the Jubilee year, God is telling people to give up that land, to give up the cheap labor, and to take a whole year off of earning wealth. And I hear that, and I think, that sounds a little crazy. That sounds pretty inefficient. And if I'm on the side of the rich, I'm thinking, this sounds like a pretty one-sided deal. This sounds kind of unfair. I mean, God, you're telling me that I have to give away so much of what I've earned, so much of what I've paid for and worked for. You're telling me I've got to give it to someone else? No, you see, I'm on this side of the line. I have what I have because I earned it, and no one on that side of the line is going to get it. I think that's how I'd take it if God told me to practice Jubilee. But seeing the Jubilee year like that misses the much bigger picture. Because in the much bigger picture, Psalm 24, we find out that the earth is the Lord's and everything in the earth is the Lord's. Which means that all the things that I think I own, that I think I've earned, are actually God's things that he's given to me, that he's entrusted me to manage on his behalf. But getting caught up on which side of the line I'm on, I miss out on seeing God's bigger picture. And God's people who have been given this beautiful vision of a jubilee year, it becomes a year that is unrealized and unfulfilled. But God isn't done with this vision of jubilee. God is not done with his mission of making sure that all of his children are cared for and provided for. Yes, God's people fail to follow through with the Jubilee vision, but then we get to Luke chapter four. Now between the arrival of the Israelites in the promised land and Luke four, the Jubilee year doesn't really get mentioned at all. It comes up one time in the book of Isaiah. And so you might be forgiven for thinking, well, maybe God had forgotten about the Jubilee. 
right? Maybe he was willing to set that aside and maybe sweep it on the rug and let's just forget about Leviticus 25 and move on. But then we get to Luke 4. And it's Jesus right there at the beginning of his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus takes a trip back to his hometown. Now, you guys know what it's like to go back to your hometown that first time after you've become, you know, a full-fledged adult with a real job and a real career. I mean, I'm just curious, how many of you here, raise your hand if you've ever uh, been back home for some sort of official, unofficial, formal, or informal high school reunion? Have you done that before? Maybe a Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, right? So you guys know what this is like, right? On those events, what are you doing? Well, the first thing you're doing is you're picking out that outfit that looks really good, but doesn't look like, look like you're trying too hard, okay? We gotta look good, but we can't look like we're trying. And then you're, you know, you're wordsmithing your resume. You're finding opportunities to bring out all your various successes over the past few years, right? Oh, you got married last year. Let me tell you about the marathon I just ran. Um, what else are you gonna do? You're probably strategically planning for ways to stumble upon pictures from your most recent vacation and say, oh, look at this. You know, I went to Italy last year. Would you look at that? Where'd you go last year? My point is, that first trip home is important. And we want to tell people what we're about. We want to let them know what our life's been like, what we've done. And here, Jesus takes his first trip back home. And what does Jesus want his hometown to know that he's all about? this group of people who only knew him as the son of a carpenter, what does he want them to know about who he is and what his mission is? Here's what happens. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Those words about setting captives free, about proclaiming good news to the poor, about the year of the Lord's favor, that is Jubilee year message right there. And what Jesus is saying is that all those jubilee years that you failed to fulfill, I have come to fulfill them. And that good news that was meant for the poor, I have come to preach it to them. And those servants that are stuck in captivity, I have come to set them free. The good news of the jubilee has come in Jesus, and not just for one year, but for all time. This is what Jesus is about. He's the Lord of jubilee. And the Lord of Jubilee makes it very clear who the Jubilee was for. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, he says, everyone 
everyone. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul comes in and he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You see, the message of Jesus is humbling. It says, you might think you've got something, you might think you've earned something, but the truth is, you're all slaves to sin. You're all impoverished, but guess what? I have come to bring the jubilee for you. The good news of being set free, the good news of being made rich through my generosity is for you. For the wealthy and for the poor, for the homeowners, for the home renters, the Lord of Jubilee has come with his message and said that this good news and restoration is good news and restoration for you. The Lord of Jubilee showed us the true meaning of generosity because he became poor to make you and I rich. Rich with the good news and the new life and the fresh start that he bought for us with his blood. By his blood, you and I have been set free and by his poverty, you and I have been made rich. But you know, this brings me back now to that question we had at the beginning. Which side of the Jubilee line are we on? Because you hear Jesus and he says that we were all slaves to sin. Well, that makes it sound like that we're the poor, the ones who receive the generosity. But then Paul comes in and says that, that by his poverty we're made rich, and if I've been made rich, then I'm on the side of those who are called to give the generosity. So which side is it? The answer is that you and I live on both sides of the Jubilee line. We have been given and received freedom and new life from Jesus. We were slaves with no hope of being set free. We were poor and impoverished with no hope of a new start, but Jesus came to give us the new life and the fresh start. And I'll tell you what, that is a transformative generosity right there. That's a generosity that changes generations. It's the generosity that brought you here to this church because maybe your parents were raised in the faith and they passed down that generosity to you and you're bringing your kids with you here today because you wanna pass that generosity down to, him, down to them. The generosity of Jesus transforms generations. And because we have been given to, because Jesus has shown us generosity and made us rich, we are now called to give out and show that generosity to our neighbor. The Christian life is lived in this rhythm on both sides of the Jubilee line, receiving good and gracious things from God and sharing those good and gracious things with others. Everything that we do here at Messiah, everything that we do, is built upon this rhythm. 
this rhythm of being given to and giving away. Our vision here is to be a church for St. Charles, and that means that we're gonna be a church that gives to our community, that gives to St. Charles because we've first been given to. We love because he first loved us. And getting the ordering of that right makes all the difference. We don't love, we don't give to get more things from God. We give because we've already been given everything from God. And if you've got everything, what a great thing to share with those who have nothing. Christian life is lived on both sides of the Jubilee line. You have with you today, we mailed out these envelopes for Jubilee Sunday. And there's a way to give online if you don't have an envelope or a pledge card with you or a check to bring up. But what Jubilee Sunday is, it's an invitation to give an above and beyond gift so that we can continue doing above and beyond ministry here at our church. And so what our invitation today is this. Maybe you've been giving 2%. You've trusted God with 2% of what you've made. Today we're inviting you to start giving 3%. Maybe you've given nothing to the church before. Today we're inviting you to start giving something. It could be a one-time gift. It could be an ongoing gift. We're inviting you to engage in above and beyond generosity so the church can show above and beyond love to our community. And let me just say that when I say the church, I'm not talking just about Pastor Schley or myself. When I say the church, I'm talking about you. And so the above and beyond ministry I'm inviting you to give to is above and beyond ministry that you are doing. I just wanna show you right now some of the things you get to be a part of through your above and beyond generosity. I have the, the pleasure of working alongside a partner in ministry, Hannah Lang, who goes above and beyond in so many ways. But one of those ways, I got to be a part of this past December in our Jingle Jam. And Jingle Jam is a night uh, that, is, that happens outside of our weekly programming. Right? Because we have families in our community that might not come to our Sunday morning weekly programming, but they're willing to come to Jingle Jam. And so it's a night of fun and of sharing the gospel. And I'll tell you, the stories I love to hear are from families that say, Jingle Jam gives me something to invite my friends to and their kids to. Because they might not be ready to show up here Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30, but they're willing to hear the gospel at Jingle Jam. And that girl right there, for the good news of Jesus through a mission of going above and beyond. Our community groups here went above and beyond this past year. Our coordinator, Jill McCoy, uh, she, she heard some research and did some research and discovered that the number one thing moms are looking for in a church is community, a place to be seen and to be heard, to see and to be seen. And so that inspired a whole group of women, Jill and Laura and Hannah, to throw this mom's night. And 150 moms showed up in this gym to see and be seen, to hear and to be heard. And two community groups came out of that night. And now we've got a group of guys who said, we're going to do something for the men and the dads in our church. 
And now we've got this community group of guys that meets together very early on Sunday mornings for working out, for community, for growing together. And what this story shows me is that going above and beyond is infectious. Now we get to bless the kids through Jingle Jam, the moms and the dads of our church here. In our youth ministry here at Messiah, you know, our vision has always been to create a space, not just for our kids that are already here, but to create a space that kids can bring their friends to. And one of our former high schoolers caught on to this vision of making our space something for their friends. It was Ivy Mueller, actually. It was Pastor Jim's daughter. And she started inviting her friend, Maddie, to our youth ministry. And Maddie became engaged and involved, and over the next year, she kept showing up. She even came with us to the National Youth Gathering in Houston. And there in Houston, I talked to Maddie, and I said, Maddie, have you ever been baptized? She said, no. I said, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? She said, yes. I said, you want to be baptized this summer? She said, absolutely. And that summer, in a backyard pool, we got to baptize Maddie and welcome her into the family of God right there in front of her friends and family. That same summer, Maddie started inviting someone else who wasn't involved in our youth ministry. She invited her brother Caleb, and Caleb got involved and stayed plugged in for the next year. And then I get an email from his mom, and Caleb's mom says, Ryan, would you be willing, can my son be baptized? And I said, absolutely. And just this past summer, at our summer camp, Maddie's brother Caleb was baptized in that lake right there. Above and beyond is infectious. But you know, I think my favorite image of what going above and beyond can look like is, is what we did here this past Friday. This night to shine that was kicked off and orchestrated by Stephanie Silby, someone I get to work with here at Messiah. Night to shine is a night where we got to welcome 160 guests into this church. And look at that image right there. Do you wanna know what it looks like to be loved and seen by those who have been loved and seen. It looks like that right there. Do you want to know what the entrance way to heaven is going to look like? It's going to look like that right there. Where those of us who have been seen and known and loved by God show others what it's like to be seen and known and loved by God. So my invitation, Messiah, for you today is would you please come forward and give an above and beyond gift to keep doing above and beyond ministry for our community so that we can keep sharing the good things that God has given us to girls like Emily right here. During this next song, you're gonna get to come up and bring those pledge cards, those checks, and put them in these baskets right here. And I wanna invite you to come up with your family, with your children, to show that this is a generosity, not just for their parents, but for the next generation and for all the generations to come.